For over 5,000 years of documented history, people have been using the cannabis plant as medicine. From ancient Chinese medical journals to the modern-day dispensaries, cannabis and its many medical uses have found their way to every continent on Earth. Today, as the prohibition against this plant is slowly being lifted around the world and our technological capacity grows exponentially, we finally have the opportunity to discover what this plant is truly capable of. Please join me, Matthew Myro, as I speak with the remarkable innovators working at the cutting edge of these discoveries. This is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome to another episode of the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. It is the place to go if you're looking to hear the latest and best information out there from physicians, from researchers, from cultivators, anything that you want to know about medical cannabis and you want the facts, this is the place to be. And in today's episode, I'm bringing you just that. We have an expert cultivator in Michael Williamson. In this episode, he shares with you some of his early trials and tribulations in the retail space around medical dispensaries. And also, he takes us on a deep, deep dive into plant genetics and where we're headed with things like predictive selection and plant tissue cultures. This episode is fascinating. I learned so much, and I'm sure you will too. So enjoy the latest episode here with Michael Williamson. I am Matthew Myro. This is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast, and today's guest is Michael Williamson. Michael is an entrepreneur, innovator, and I don't use this term lightly, a master cultivator. I know he doesn't like that term. Yeah, we should probably take that off there. Huh? <laughs> In 2008, he co-founded and operated a vertically operated medical cannabinoid company in Colorado called Kindlove. Michael also co-founded Greenhouse Industries on the backbone of his patented design of a multi-level racking system that allows cultivators to maximize their growth space. He also served as Director of Operations for F.L. Risch and Harborside Farms and their 47-acre farm in Monterey County, California. And he also founded Allele Genetics, which I really want to know a lot more about. I'm excited about that. And is also the co-owner of Good to Go Management. Michael is a good agricultural practices certified from Cornell University, and is currently the Chief Operating Officer of Catalyst BC, which we'll dive deep into. All in all, he has designed and consulted on over 9 million square feet of both indoor and outdoor cultivation space in the last, in at least five different countries. Has it been more than five yet? Are you still there? Um, no, I think five is still, five still the number. Yeah. yeah, I did the math on that. It's over 150 football fields. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's... Some, somebody's got to do it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad it's you, man. Yeah. It's you. Well, great. Well, welcome, Michael. Let's dive in. And if you don't mind, why don't you just share a little bit of your story of how you first got involved in cannabis and recognizing it as medicine? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as we've discussed before, um, you know, essentially I was a sick child growing up. Um, you know, I was misdiagnosed with several autoimmune disorders. Um, symptomatically, you know, I've been in a coma. I've had uh, grand mal seizures. I've been paralyzed from the waist down twice, double vision. So I've, I've dealt with a lot of symptomatic stuff that um, traditional medicine, uh, I was under the impression was helping, but it definitely wasn't helping enough. Um, like any curious teenager, I was experimenting with cannabis without having a good understanding of the power of its medicine. Um, 
And then it wasn't until I got sick kind of in my, uh, at the age of 16, where I kind of started looking at cannabis from a different perspective. Um, for a long time, I thought I found a blend between Eastern and Western medicine. And so um, I quickly realized that cannabis wasn't what a lot of people, you know, I grew up during like the D.A.R.E. administration and kind of that education. And I remember that kind of first time using cannabis, there was this like awakening, if you will. Um, it was very clear to me that a lot of the stuff that I learned in the D.A.R.E. program, you know, I didn't want to hurt anyone. I didn't want to hurt myself. I wasn't out of control. And, you know, for the first time in a long time, um, I felt clear, crisp and creative. Um, and for someone who was dealing with some health issues, um, they seemed to be not at the tip of my of mindset. And that is a big win in its own self when you're dealing with health challenges. So it became clear that there was something a lot more to cannabis. Um, I started taking a little bit more of a deeper interest um, in genetics uh, as I found that there was a ton of diversity in cannabis. Um, I started educating myself on common practices for cultivation and, and came to find out that a lot of um, growers at the time were using a lot of pesticides that were potentially harmful to someone like myself with a compromised immune system, um, which inevitably led me down kind of a, I think I should grow my own kind of scenario. Um, and I grew up on the East Coast in a state that didn't really um, allow that. So that was a, a, a health risk that I felt that I had to take. Um, and so I started a lot of my internal projects from seed. Um, and that's what really stirred a passion for, I would say, genetic diversity and kind of all the different trade expressions that this plant has to offer. Um, you know, not knowing that cannabis was going to be like a real viable legal industry that I was going to jump into, it wasn't my focus after I got out of school. My focus was on trying to help as many people as possible. Um, and at that time, the community that meant the most to me was the multiple sclerosis community. Um, as I was misdiagnosed with MS um, at a younger age. And so I went to work for a major pharmaceutical company that's very well known around the world. Um, and I worked a lot with um, peer mentoring programs, helping people get over certain mental barriers uh, when you get diagnosed with something, really focusing on kind of the life quality issues and challenges with new diagnosis. Um, and did that for about seven years. And then I came to the realization that the pharmaceutical company I was working for wasn't creating solutions uh, and really wasn't motivated to cure something or to create solutions. And that there was quite a bit of money in just treating disease symptoms um, and side effects, creating them and mitigating them with other pharmaceutical drugs. And so um, after taking a personal challenge um, as advised by my neurologist, um, I realized that I was misdiagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And so um, the $7 million worth of interferon that I injected into my body for those seven years uh, was essentially not necessary. And as you can imagine, that kind of puts you into a mindset that it makes you question everything. Um, but one thing that I was always, um, I don't know, like a comforting friend that was always there was cannabis. And not to say that I needed it like a leverage, but it was something that always symptomatically made me feel better. It was so noticeable compared to everything else. It just seemed to make me more sick or less sick. And so I moved to Denver, Colorado in 2009 with no intention of getting involved in the cannabis industry other than getting my medical card and having a, a, you know, a legal channel to get medicine. And more importantly, at the time, I was really looking for more knowledge. I had so many questions that people couldn't answer uh, where I lived. And so I thought maybe moving to a medical state, I'll 
I'll get some of these questions answered. And as we've discussed before, my first three dispensaries in Colorado, and mind you, there was only about 27 or so in the state at the time, um, they were very lackluster experiences. I, I knew more than they did, and that was kind of frightening. So um, I decided to do something about it. I saw there was a big opportunity to increase um, retail experience, I would say, retail knowledge, you know, the whole, the whole package, retail products. And so um, three of us had gotten together and we decided to open up a facility in more of a, an upscale area of Denver in the Cherry Creek kind of Glendale area. And we saw that there was underserved markets. And for us, that was women, seniors, and the sick. A lot of the dispensaries that were there at the time, they weren't very inviting from the outside. And we know that if women um, and seniors and, and people dealing with health challenges, if it looks like it's hard to get into or it looks kind of sketchy, they're not going to come in. So we made sure that, you know, our experience started from the, at the parking lot. Um, and it was a whole complete kind of experience. So kind of four corners and four walls. So we knew everything about our property. We made sure that our property was maintained and that it was well lit. Uh, the signage was, um, you know, appropriate and things like that. That company was called Kind Love. And the mantra of Kind Love was that we wanted to obviously produce high quality, kind cannabis, but really we wanted to put love into every step of that um, process. And that's so critical. There's so many patients go into this with a bit of a stigma around it being a medicine and they might be trying it for the first time even. Right? And to be able to walk into a place like that versus some of the first places that you went into, that's a, really a gift to the community. Well, and the truth is, is there's still a lot of elevation that needs to happen in retail dispensaries. You know, I'm, I'm not the uh, ideal person that you want to bud tend on or, or service because I know a little bit too much. And I do ask questions because I'm curious to see what level of training have they had? Where's their knowledge base? And, you know, the information that you get back at most retail experiences is not only lackluster, but it's also often bad information. Um, and if you're taking this from a health perspective, um, there's nothing worse than getting bad information from someone that thinks they know what they're talking about and, and can't support the statements that they're making by, you know, science or, or evidence. So where did that take you? You had that experience and it seems like it was success for you. Um, oh, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, it was, a, it was a happy, it was a happy mistake. Um, you know, there was, we got kind of um, quickly rose to the top as being a top five or top 10 facility to visit when you come to Colorado and you'll still hear good stuff about kind love. Um, we did sell the company in 2015, but around 2012, they said you have to be vertically integrated. And that's when things got really interesting for me. I was a bit frustrated with a lot of the vendors we were dealing with early in the early couple of years, because Can you take a moment just to explain what vertically integrated means to uh, yes, of course. Um, so by law, we had to supply 70% of our own products and we could trade 30% uh, with another licensed facility. So if you wanted edibles, um, your flour, I mean, you really had to make, kind of make everything back then. And so we ended up um, cultivating in several warehouses in the beginning. Um, we had an extraction facility. We made infused products. And we really tried to elevate a lot of the stuff that we saw in the market. So we made sure our packaging was elevated. We were one of the first kind of groups to really focus on cultivar or strain specific edibles. So we did everything strain specific or cultivar specific. So if you, if you came to us and said, just for easy terms, sour diesel is uh, what I need for my, um, you know, energy challenges or my focus, um, we could be, but you're like, Oh, I don't smoke flour. 
I needed something stronger. We had pretty much, you know, sour diesel in every type of um, hash concentrate possible. If you're like, I actually don't smoke at all. I just eat cannabis. Well, no problem there. We have a sour diesel cookie, gummy, um, you know, and other options too. So it was really taking the cannabis plant uh, into like various forms. I mean, even today, most edibles, it might say sativa or indica or hybrid, but it's not telling you a whole lot of information that's going to drive the consistency that you're looking for. So when it was cultivar specific, you know, it was something that you could rely on just a bit more. There's still obviously batch to batch nuances, but overall it was a really elevated product at the time. Um, and even today it's 2020. We don't see people doing a lot of um, cultivar specific edibles as an example. Yeah. So something I've always kind of wondered is how come all the edibles are, are junk food? <laughs> I mean, I know that it, you need a lipid base to be able to extract yeah. them, but it, it, it sucks that you're trying to serve medicine as a cookie or a gummy or something. It, it seems really unfortunate. No, absolutely. You know, I'm not sure why that is. I don't know if it's like the world's addicted to sugar. So it's an easy thing to just kind of emulate. Um, a lot of the confectionery stuff is a little bit easier for blending for people like chocolates. If you kind of know your ropes are on chocolate, it's pretty friendly and it can mask unwanted tastes if you have those. Um, but I agree with you. Um, there were savory options that came out, but it was just, it didn't seem to get a lot of traction early on when we were in business. I know that, um, the way that people think about food today is very different than even five years ago. So there's more and more options, I think, coming on that note because, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, let's say you've got, you know, I don't know, gastrointestinal issues. Like you probably don't want a sugary cookie or if you're trying to do like something before bed, you know, as something as sleep aid, do you really want to take in a bunch of sugar before you go into bed? So I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think there's just so much room for innovation in that particular area. Definitely. Definitely. So that seems like that's the place where you really got your start with the cultivation. Yeah, Kind Love was like the, it was like the learning place. You know, we made the first year. It was like let's make a million dollars in mistakes with this cultivation facility. Um, you know, and I it's think a lot of freedom. That's great. Oh, it was brutal. <laughs> it was um, it was definitely something we did for love and not for money, or we would have quit pretty early on. Um, but gosh, what what an opportunity! And I think now today it's such an interesting time because there's people like my group and there's other consulting firms are actually quite good. There's a bunch of consulting companies that are not so great, of course, because people think it's an easy thing to explain to people how to do, even though they haven't done it themselves in half the cases. Um, but gosh, back then I would have gladly paid a consultant to come in and tell me what to do or to give, give me some outside advice. And, you know, I think it's like anything, um, when you look at something for so long, you know, sometimes you just can't see what's right in front of you. So having, educated and experienced outside eyes to be able to come in and help optimize your operation or maybe just get you to think about something from a different perspective. You know, it just didn't exist back then. So a lot of it was very exploratory. Um, as I mentioned, when vertical integration happened with Kindlove, um, we, we basically didn't know what to do. We grabbed five. We had one warehouse that was kind of small. It was about 5,000 square feet. And we had another one, I think about 10,000. We grabbed another three. So all of a sudden now we have five different grow facilities, five different growers, some which think they're master growers, which is a, you know, it's a bad word, uh, in my opinion. We, we haven't mastered a thing. And so, um, you know, all of a sudden I found that we were having different product types, um, you know, just like a lot of unnecessary costs. And so in 2013, that kind of motivated us to put, uh, to consolidate it, essentially, to sell off some of the grow facilities and actually put everybody under one roof. And so we started designing my first like large project that I can really say, um, you know, 
I got it pretty darn close. Um, was a 90,000 square foot indoor facility um, in Denver in 2013. And it was purpose built. So it wasn't, it was kind of a blank canvas. And that was the first time that I ever had an opportunity like that. Um, and so we were able to reduce our cost of goods sold um, significantly because, you know, you go from five facilities, that's five management teams, that's five securities, that's five rents, that's five uh, electric bills, kind of all those things. So we, by consolidating, we were able to really standardize our offering. Um, we did keep one of our smallest warehouses and it was the one that was probably the most important. And so the 5,000 smaller square foot warehouse, its purpose was for um, pheno selection hunting, breeding, you know, developing new cultivars, um, testing things, improving them out before bringing them into the production facility. And I think one of the things that made us great at the Kind Love um, era that we were there from 2009 to about 2015 was we had genetics that nobody else in the market had. So as the market in Colorado got saturated... Let me interrupt you for just a second. I'm sorry. But uh, speaking of the genetics, if you could describe what this phenoselection, what does that mean? And also when you say cultivars, what are you speaking to? Yeah, you know, cultivar is a word that I use kind of in replacement of the word strain or now it's commonly called strand uh, for some folks. Um, um, but yeah, basically, you know, we were looking at F1 crosses. So we either were making seed, had seed. Um, and so we were hunting for new um, phenotypes or, you know, if you look at each seed as a phenotype, um, because the breeding in cannabis is so unstable at this point, um, you have lots of different um, phenotypical expression or trait expression, or, you know, you could have the same, let's call it sour diesel again. And let's say you had six of them, uh, but the dominance might lean more towards the, you know, one of the parental lineages, either the mother or the father in this case, and it might have different traits. It could be taller or squattier. Um, the terpene profiles can actually be quite different in some cases. And so we were always just looking for something that was uh, checked all the boxes. So it was generally high yielding. Um, we, we recognize that higher THC products for most of the market was something that was desired. Um, exotic terpenes have really become kind of a, a really big push in the last five years, but looking for something that really gave you that experience. You know, if you, if you open the jar, you should be excited. It should emotionally stir you. There's so much cannabis being grown that just kind of smells like cannabis. It's kind of green. It's like borderline between like green grass and hay. And it does the trick kind of, but you have to use a lot of it, but it doesn't really excite you. It's kind of like something, it's like, I don't know, it's like a plain cup of coffee versus a craft, a craft cup of coffee. We're like, oh, uh, so rich, you know, you really eat all the flavors and things. And so um, we recognize that in a saturated market, everybody was growing a lot of the same stuff. And so if you're growing the same stuff as your neighbor, you really only have one way to compete and that's price. And so we watched this price spiral, you know, down in Denver. And while that was happening, we were actually able to maintain our prices um, because we had something that no one else had. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, that's kind of the name of the game. Um, having a product or offering or service that very few people can honestly say they have the exact same thing for the same price. So it put us into, a, I think, a good position. And it also highlighted that there are a lot of variances and differences in cannabis. Um, not all cannabis is equal. So this might be a whole new topic for a lot of the listeners out there, but one thing that I know that you love to talk about is data-driven decisions in the cultivation process. And this is really, it's an art and a science. And you've 
come a long way with the science part of it. Would you mind speaking to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, there's so much going on, especially in cultivation facilities with quote unquote master growers and, and personalities and opinions. And a lot of times there'll be a lot of cultivation decisions that happen because one person thinks it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, they're like, oh, I just, I have it in my head or, oh, I, this is the best pheno. I, I picked it. I, I like the way it grows. And it's like, well, you know, to me, that's the grower is a critical slice of the informational pie, but there, you need to get all of the slices of the informational pie to make an educated decision. So like a simple exercise that I do with my own teams, um, and, and groups that we consult and work for is when I ask them about their numbers, I'm interested in their potency numbers. So how much THC or CBD or other cannabinoids do you have in each batch of or specific cultivar? And then also I'm interested in what the yield is. I'm also interested in looking at yields of not just the total weight, but what's the ratio of basically flour, like trim flour for sale to actual trim. And this is a really interesting concept because some people are like, oh, the terps on this are so loud, it's so good. And then you look at the ratio of trim flour to actual trim in a batch, and it could be 50-50. It could be 50% of its trim, 50% of its bud. It could be 60-40. You also have cultivars that are like 80% flour for final bud, and then you have 20% trim. Well, you're not usually getting paid a whole lot on trim. Some states have some exceptions, but... Um, it's obviously a lot more financially lucrative to grow for flour and not for trim. Um, and something I learned early on at Kind Love is if you're not profitable, you're not going to help anybody. So the more money you make and the more profitable you are, the more ability to do stuff for your community, the more stuff you can uh, lower prices for people in need. Um, it gives you a lot more flexibility. So um, getting into the minutia of the details of why you're growing something is really critical. Um, so we call it a, a calyx to leaf ratio or a bud to trim ratio. And at the end of the day, you're looking at an ideal cultivar, I'd say is maybe like a 70 or 80% um, calyx to leaf ratio or bud to trim ratio. It also reduces a lot of labor. So as we talk about touches and, and trichome preservation is one of the next things we're going to be talking about. Um, the less you have to handle this product and the less you have to put labor touches into it, the lower your cost of goods sold is for that product. Thus your profit margins in theory should be greater than your competitors or someone working with a different cultivar. And the quality of the product. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So, okay. So we're going to move into what you're doing now. This is what I'm really curious about here. So a lot of these, this data that you've been doing, you've been able to create these different systems and one thing and specifically you've talked about is the genetics and you've always been curious about that. And so how is that translated into what you're up to these days? Yeah. So, um, a couple things are going on on the genetic side. Um, we have, um, partnerships and relationships with, um, tissue culture and micropropagation facilities, um, predominantly in Canada. And we're, we're kind of working on our infrastructure here in the U S and for, you know, people who aren't familiar with plant tissue culture, um, it's essentially um, a collection of techniques used to maintain um, or grow plant cells, tissue, or organs in a sterile condition. Um, there's usually a nutrient culture medium of like known composition. Um, it's used really widely in producing clones of plants and methods 
what they refer to as micropropagation. And there's different techniques in plant tissue culture that offer certain advantages um, compared to traditional mother and cloning relationship. And so um, there's a couple things going on. You know, with mothers and clones, you have something that's kind of always alive and it's always susceptible to a problem. And plants are a lot like people. Um, the older we get, the more susceptible we are to problems. So if you have a, a mother that's six months old, nine months old, a year old, you know, it's been around for a lot of different um, environmental stresses, maybe pest pressures, maybe disease pressure. And so if you're just replicating that, um, you can spread disease pretty quickly. Um, and it's actually starting to become kind of an issue here in the US, uh, particularly in California. And so with tissue culture, you basically are storing the product. There's kind of a, it's almost like having a storage bank that's um, kind of in a coma, if you will, or it's in an in vitro state. And we have the ability to bring it out of a coma or into ex vitro um, through plant tissue culture techniques. Um, the other thing that's nice is you can basically do exact copies of plants um, and do it very quickly. So if you need to scale up tissue culture and you have the right population in place, um, it leaves you a lot more flexibility for kind of handling the market and market changes and market um, uh, trends. When you have a larger facility, we start talking about 100,000 or 200 or you know a million square feet of cultivation. If you have to do a production changeover, and you have like a new cultivar, I mean, it could realistically, it can take up to a year to get that cultivar, kind of get the mother stock in place, get your trials done, uh, and then get it into actual production. Where with plant tissue culture, you kind of eliminate the need for mothers. Uh, you receive little plantlets and then you acclimate them. And you, the, the idea behind the services that a lot of the companies are trying to offer is, um, yes, we'll clean up your genetics. So if you have any diseases, um, there's an ability to actually sanitize the plant and get it back to kind of an original state. You can also preserve the plant and play with it later. So if you're really into pheno hunting or selection and you just have stuff that you know that you're going to play with in the future potentially, but you just don't have room for a live plant in your grow, um, tissue culture is a great way to store or bank a lot of genetics and keep them in a viable state that you can bring them back at a future time to play with. Cool. It sounds like growing plants in the Starship Enterprise. It gets interesting, and yeah. uh, you know, I'm 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 kind of the dummy in the group when it comes to a lot of that stuff. I've just been around some really good teams, and so I'm just kind of picking it up as I go. But you know, right now, a big issue in California is the hops latent virus is what they're identifying it as, but it's causing a lot of challenges in a lot of facilities, and you know, it's looking at you know twenty to thirty percent production yields, um, different. Um, I would say non-desired trait expressions. And so something like tissue culture has the ability to sanitize and clean up a lot of these diseases that you know are very costly to farmers. They also tend to perform very well in the field because if you do have something that has a disease, it's almost like being an athlete and running in a race. And um, if you have a disease, it's like someone put their hand over your mouth while you're trying to run a marathon. You're not going to perform as well because you're just not you know, you're not getting enough oxygen in or it's not coming in as smoothly where when I saw tissue culture for the first time in the field, like compared to the stock, it was, you know, healthier shoots, bigger leaves, um, taller plant, higher yielding, a little bit more vigorous, um, different lateral branch spacing, like really ideal structure. And, you know, when the first time I saw it, I was like, wow, I feel like I'm seeing the plant for the first time at what it was supposed to be. So it's got uh, plant tissue culture and micropropagation. Um, I think they're going to be playing a really key role 
in the future of cannabis. It's great there's all these genetics floating out there and people are passing them around, but they're also passing around a lot of disease and a lot of problems. So it's going to be pretty critical for future operators that they have a way, at the very least, to clean stock mother program and make sure that they're getting tissue culture maybe once every three or six months for mother stock production, even if they decide to continue with traditional cloning. And do you store all your own genetics with the uh, tissue culture? In the tissue we're, form? we're um, not all of them yet. It's something definitely it's, 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 it's a top priority goal amongst many things. Um, I think the majority of our um, kind of proven winners, if you will, things that we've already kind of put through the gauntlet um, are mostly all in tissue culture, but we're always working with new stuff. It's kind of that continuous improvement mentality. And so um, not everything is in tissue culture, but hopefully one day. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Your, your Kaizen mentality. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Where did you pick up on that for the first time? Um, you know, I, you know that the word Kaizen I, I heard multiple times, you know, and I remember I had to look it up and I was like, oh, that's such a nice thing. Like what a beautiful concept, you know, this continuous improvement kind of mentality, never being complacent. That's why I don't like the word master grower. Um, you know, we say you're only as good as your last harvest. So it um, kind of resonated with me early on. And then I didn't really get into um, living it as much until I really got into some of the lean farming principles. Um, Ben Hartman's got a great book out on Amazon that you can pick up. I really recommend it for any type of farmer or anyone. I mean, lean mentality comes from, uh, you know, originally the Toyota model kind of bringing the work to the workers. And they actually got that concept from the rice farmers that were over there as well. And so can you give uh, an example of what lean farming would be? Yeah, lean farming is basically, I mean, the concept is basically how to minimize waste, increase your efficiency and maximize your value and profits with less work. It's it's almost a utopian. It's what everybody kind of wants, but doesn't really know how to get to. And a lot of it just strips out a lot of what they call like non-value adding waste. Um, so a good example at a facility, what I learned um, working in California on a, on a five acre greenhouse property is if I could reduce five seconds of any one task on a one acre proper on a one acre greenhouse, that I was going to reduce the total human hours that I needed to do that task by 27 hours. And so at California rates, you know, you start talking about thousands of dollars. And what that taught me was is that seconds matter. And so a lot of people in simple things, there's things in lean that are just so simple, um, like tool storage. You know, tools are either in your hand or they all have a home. You know, everything in lean pretty much has a home and it's really critical that everything is always, um, it, they shuffle through things. So they'll, if they were to come into a farm that was 30 year old farm and had stuff everywhere, the first thing they want to do is they want to get all the non-value adding waste that's just being stored on the property. Um, a lot of times when a farm is cluttered or a cultivation facility is cluttered, the people operating it, it adds like mental clutter. And I don't know how to really explain it, but. It's almost like the, uh, the Marie Kondo method for a farm. Yeah. Yes. It's, I'm pretty sure that's all correlated. I, I know who you're referring to, but I haven't actually seen any of her stuff. Oh, it's um, worth it. Definitely worth it. I think she's my an, wife, she's uh, an angel. Her. <laughs> yeah. She like rearranged her kitchen after watching one of her things. And I was like, okay, I like this, but yeah, yeah. you know, tools should be placed in eye level. Um, everything has a home. Um, you, utilizing things like magnets are really great with tools. So like, you know, in this case, let's say, um, we're talking about cannabis. So let's talk about like a trim room. A trim room should have kind of like a lean board where 
the isopropyl alcohol is always stored here. The scissors are always stored here. Maybe they're connected to magnets, so they always kind of have a magnetic home. Um, gloves are always stored here. And everything's always accessible. They never want you to like go look for a tool because that's like non-value adding wasted time. You know, usually what happens when someone doesn't know how to do a task, they look around for a while, then they interrupt someone who's working and then they ask them how to do it. That person sometimes will say, I don't know, you should talk to the manager. So now because you maybe don't have good training or good visual aids, a lot of lean is about visual aids and a lot of them are just pictures. Um, but now you're starting to interrupt people. You interrupt the manager, you interrupt the other workers, and now you have, now you have unproductive time and distraction because someone wasn't clear on what they were supposed to be doing or they weren't sure where a tool was located. But once you identify a home for everything and you go through extensive training with people with strong visual aids of here's what it should look like before and here's what it should look like after and here's all the steps in between to get from point A to point B, um, it really kind of streamlines things. And people have had great success with lean. You know, it comes out of like kind of lean manufacturing, but lean farming is definitely a very real thing that I think anyone who reads a book or listens to one of, um, I know um, Ben Hartman's got a couple great podcasts out there, but anyone that listens to something there that I advise them to listen to, they always come back to me and say, thank you so much for, you know, having me listen to that podcast or read that book. I learned these three things and I think that's great. And sometimes it's all you need. It's just like, to learn one thing that makes your life a little bit easier at work. And so beyond when you go into a space and say you're consulting for a new grow, so you're bringing these practices on top of all of your years of experience with specifically with cannabis too. Yeah. I mean, you know, no two cultivation facilities are quite the same, but there's usually three core principles that everyone kind of struggles with or three areas that most people can improve upon in cultivation. And the first one's just controlling the environment. Um, you know, there's so many things that go into why the environment's not controlled. A lot of it's bad design or bad engineering or people not knowing exactly what the needs were or understanding transpiration rates with the plants. So we see a lot of, you know, high humidity environments that are operating um, outside of a desired kind of um, environmental range. Um, so environmental control is a really key thing to focus on. And a lot of people, there's always room to improve your environment. Um, it's very rare to go into a facility, especially greenhouses, with all the seasonality that they have. And they're just, you know, the, the environment's dialed year round. It's, there's always challenges and, and, and setbacks. So um, the other one is genetics. A lot of people are growing genetics that are just kind of lackluster or they're commonplace and not in high demand or maybe they grow well in the garden, but they don't necessarily, um, the retail hasn't, or the customer kind of isn't crazy about it. And so, you know, if you can get your environment right and you can get good genetics, I mean, that's like, that seems to be about 75% of most people's problems. I think the other part of it is, is just getting your process and your flow down. And that's kind of where lean really comes in. Um, standardizing your processes, making sure that you don't have, um, when you look at how something should flow, like a plant has a life cycle. So an example, if you were building like a, designing a lean kind of facility for cultivation, um, you don't want to create like, um, I don't know, like a ping pong of where your product goes, right? So if it starts with mothers, mothers should be maybe at the back of the facility as an example. Um, and then from mothers, it goes to clones. So clones should be pretty close to moms and they might not need to be in the same space, but they should be not across like flower rooms. Uh, then if you're going into veg, you go into veg, you go into flower, and then that should be a linear path. You know, you shouldn't be like 
bouncing around a corridor or oh, I got to move like so many people move plants and they do it very inefficiently because of a bad design. Um, and there's just so many better ways to reduce your steps. A lot of it is design and just really getting to that kind of linear flow. And even with like a harvest, like once you harvest a plant, um, we'll do something called the spaghetti diagram where we'll either look at like from a, an above security camera or you could even sit on a ladder if you really wanted to. And you literally just trace different um, streams. So an example of a stream would be, um, I'd look at um, a workflow stream. So maybe the color red is the people. And I'm literally just drawing lines on what this, where these people are flowing to. Um, another waste or another stream might be uh, green material or like, you know, um, final good products. You're, you're, you're chasing your product stream as well. And then the last color, I usually use three colors. The third color is a waste stream. Where does a waste go? How does it get bounced around? And what ends up happening in most operations is you kind of get through this exercise for 15, 20 minutes and you have what looks like a plate of spaghetti on your paper. And so the idea is, is that you actually don't want it. You want to minimize all the curves and the loops by straightening out that spaghetti. And you also want to remove spaghetti. Some people just like to touch something unnecessarily. Um, you know, it's not uncommon for um, a chopped plant in a facility to be touched 15 times, be in five different bins. Um, and, you know, that's when we get a trichome preservation. Right. So the, less the we, care the less that needs to be taken from yeah, the very beginning all the way through to the end. Yeah, a lot of people miss that part. A lot of great growers out there and they grow great products and it looks great on Instagram and, you know, on the vine, it looks amazing. And then it just gets butchered in the drying, curing and, and post-harvest handling process. To me um, and my team as well, we value the post-harvest manager equivalently as we do this quote unquote head grower, master grower, um, because for that reason, and honestly, there's a lot more good science behind cultivation than there is around drying and curing. Drying and curing is somewhere between experience, um, some science and, and mechanical environmental control and almost like hippie, hippie magic. Um, and personal preference too. It depends on your geography. You know, I'm currently in Denver, Colorado. The cannabis is so dry out here. You know, when I'm in California, like it's, it's, you know, it's quite sticky. Um, mm -hmm. And when California people come to Colorado, like, as cannabis is terrible. It's so dry. <laughs> and then, you know, in the Colorado people go to California and they're like, Oh, this stuff's all wet. So it's just about your geography and what you grew up on and kind of what, what resonates well with you. Yeah. What and, your uh, trimmers too. Getting a, yeah. the trimmers like the dryer and for time consumption, it's actually more convenient as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to see a lot of, um, advancements in drying and curing. Um, there's some really fascinating stuff coming out with dry freezers and cryo curing and, um, you know, capturing terpenes faster and kind of locking them in, stabilizing product, remediating product. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of advancements. We already are, but it should be, I think, changing quite a bit over the next five years. Yeah, absolutely. And so you're staying on top of that, all the different tools that are coming along the pipeline. And this is incredible. Cryo drying, that's well, it's interesting, right? It's one of the joys of consulting is you kind of get to see, you know, I've been to four or 500 growth facilities around the globe and you get to see what they do right and you get to see what they do wrong. Um, and you get a lot of exposure to a lot of different equipment, um, particularly like in HVAC and cooling, um, but also, yeah, in post-harvest processing, extraction. Um, and so, yeah, it's, 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 a, 
it's hard to keep your pulse on all of it, but uh, I'm grateful for our partners um, who've kind of gone down different paths and being a part of their journey and, you know, helping them work through the, the good, the bad, and the ugly sometimes. So we'll switch gears a little bit, move over to hemp and hemp flower. And things changed a lot in the last few years in this country around hemp and what's going on there. And uh, I was really interested to hear that you started with a lot of outdoor cultivations, grows, and then weren't able to actually control what you were doing and you're getting invaded by different genetics that were raising the THC levels and made the kind of controversial decision to move everything all inside. What was that like for you? Yeah. Well, you know, so our hemp journey started in 2015, you know, we sold kind love and then we had some free time and then all of a sudden you could legally grow hemp in Colorado. And it was the first time since 1932, 1934, something like that. And it was like, wow, what a, what an incredible opportunity. Um, this plant does belong in my opinion under the sun. And so, um, we started to dive into that space. So the very first year, 2015, the seed that you could get for hemp was, very challenging. It was a lot of um, industrial hemp and it would be, gosh, it would be a blend. You would have five or six different cultivars um, in your seed bunch and it would be, you know, French uh, land race type hemp or um, God, Finnish, Italian. I mean, we had so much different hemp and we were in the fields doing mass selection and evaluating everything from fiber to herd to plant traits. Um, and a lot of, a lot of that stuff really didn't fit what we were looking for. It would grow really big. There was males. Um, so it was the first year or two was really challenging. Um, we, we had identified a cultivar in our breeding projects when we were on the cannabis side. Um, it was originally called the wife and the wife got renamed spectrum, um, after we found more phenotypes with very unique characteristics. And so, um, so originally we were really excited for this cultivar. Um, it was like, we had one that was 25% CBD to no detection of THC. So zero. Um, we had a really high CBG cultivar. It was 12% CBG, 9% CBD and like 0.4% THC. We had another one that was classified as hemp and how they classified hemp was it had to be less than 0.3.3 or less in THC. So, all of a sudden we realized that some of these cannabis cultivars actually qualified as hemp and that they were very rich in producing oil. And so, and you know, us and others, you know, obviously came to this realization. And so you saw a big shift away from industrial hemp, which really didn't have a home because it wasn't very high in CBD, was riddled with seed. Um, it was very focused on designed to be for the herd or the fiber part of it. And we don't really have that kind of processing for fiber here in the, in the U S. So, um, you know, everyone started to realize that CBD rich oil was where it was at. And if you think about CBD, we're very lucky that we didn't breed it out of stuff. So if you look at, um, we almost, we almost did, uh, in my opinion, um, there was not a lot of lab testing for many years, right? Lab testing wasn't getting a potency test for your cannabis was a, was a new thing. And so if you think about all the people that were growing cannabis, um, let's say on the West Coast and shipping it to the East Coast, well, all of a sudden, if they accidentally came across some high CBD stuff and the end user didn't have a lab score and they didn't have a lab test. So if that didn't get you high, people weren't very excited to buy that product again. And if you're dependent on the money stream for there near the grower, you're not going to grow that cultivar next season. You're like, man, everyone complained, it didn't get them high, it was low potency or something. And so you maybe, you know, 
that just got weaned out or culled and they focused on something that was more THC rich. But this went on for quite a while. Um, and then it seemed like, you know, 2012 or so, 13, the lab testing kind of started really coming out and being a lot stronger. And all of a sudden it was, we were finding a lot more one-to-one ratio stuff. Um, and we got excited and I think, you know, we've done a good job of bringing CBD back into a, a strong mainstream kind of way, because I think without lab testing, you know, CBD could have been kind of, um, you know, taken out of the equation by us, like a natural selection, if you will. Right, right, right. And it's blown my mind to be able to actually see these plants and to the colas and the trichromes and they're gorgeous. They look every bit as good as the centerfolds of the old high times magazines and, but they don't have any THC. And yeah. It's a little different than George Washington's hemp. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, it tastes delicious. It smells delicious and, and has an incredibly soothing, calming effect in my experience, at least. Yeah. It, it's amazing. So thank you. So, um, <laughs> thanks, thanks for keeping those going. No, I mean, there's so many great people um, that that are like the unsung heroes of that. A lot of them are in California, Oregon, um, you know, and, um, you know, what we focus on now is uh, we brought a PhD onto our team. He had 20 years um, experience in um, advanced molecular breeding or genomic breeding. Um, and he was also a teacher for 20 years. Um, and so... A big part of, I think, of just Kaizen and continuous improvement and being strong in the space is you can't keep your knowledge to yourself. You have to share that knowledge. So us bringing on a 20-year teacher who had brought seven or eight PhDs up through him, plus did 20 years uh, working for some large ag companies, uh, and was considered a global lead for corn, maize, um, I'm not sure, a bunch of other crops as well. But um he's really taught us a lot about these advanced genomic tools that exist out there. Um, and it gets really kind of fascinating pretty quick. And so the word that we use when we're striving for a breeding program is heterosis and heterosis is, could be defined as hybrid vigor. And so the idea when you're making a new cross in any crop is that you're really trying to exhibit superior yield um, and desired traits in the parent lineage. So it's part of it. Like it's part of Kaizen, right? It's a continuous improvement. You're trying to create your next round of seed needs to be better than whatever the best thing is you're growing. You're trying to, you know, keep leveling that up. And that's really a continuous improvement thing that genetic breeders have been doing for forever. Um, that's how we got these big, beautiful tomatoes and sweet, delicious peaches and everything. Yeah, there's some good and some bad with some of that. Some people get confused with GMO stuff. That's not what I'm talking about here at all. Um, and so as an example, I refer to advanced genomic breeding and traditional breeding as almost being like um, uh, having a Sherpa on Mount Everest or hiking Mount Everest by yourself. There's a lot of routes that'll get you there. You might not make it to the top. You could be on the wrong route. But when you have a Sherpa guide or advanced genomic tools, um, you can do some really fun stuff. So some of the words and technology, like terminology that we use in genomic breeding would be genotyping. So when we talk about genotyping, we're really just trying to understand the DNA. So when we look at advanced molecular breeding, yeah, we're looking at your traits and we're tying traits to, to markers, but we're really looking at the DNA because it's um, the cult of our names have been so renamed over the years. It's why a lot of these um, different companies are trying to create these galaxies and genome reference tools. Um, when we talk about phenotyping, we're really trying to understand the traits of those different genotypes. Um, 
And then we use what's called QTL mapping, which identifies genes or markers that are associated with a specific phenotypical measurement. Um, and then you can use something called marker-assisted selection. So once you have a correlation of all these things, um, you can use that data to make what's predictive selection in breeding in a program, which is really fascinating. So let's say you had a breeding goal of creating a, I don't know, a blue, a blue tinted bud. Um, and you wanted to um, see if these two parent lineages would create this blue expression that you have a, a mapped trait for. And so you actually put it into a, before you even cross anything, you put it into a program and that program will predictively tell you what your chances are of hitting that outcome. It might say you have a 10% out chance of, you know, creating that. Um, and this other, this other parental lineage, you have a 70% chance. So now all of a sudden, instead of trying to go down the hard path, the unsherpa guided path with the 10% chance, you're now on the right path. You got a 70% chance of hitting your goals. Um, it makes things really quick. So where traditional breeding might take, let's call it three years, four years to stabilize, depending on how many turns and you can do it in a controlled environment. Um, we can do stabilization in 18 months. So it's kind of like having a little time machine in the breeding world. Incredible implications for the medical space. You can start really dialing in all these different cannabinoids and terpenes for specific diseases, perhaps. Yeah, you know, the cool thing about DNA is the DNA, like when we go to, um, it's called PAG, but plant animal genome, plant DNA, animal DNA, human DNA, it's all, it's, it's all DNA. Um, and now you can start to like make these, these connections. Um, yeah, the next 10 years in cannabis are going to be wildly exciting. There's some incredible companies that are doing some incredible things. Um, and uh, hopefully we see more of that in the U.S., a lot of it seems to be Israel, Europe, Canada. We're starting to see a little bit more in the U.S., but I think it's more private. But it'd be great to really see the United States be a, a leader in that space. It would be. We have such a large population and so many innovators here. And we're handcuffed at this point because of the whole Schedule 1 thing. Yeah. Yeah, it makes it quite tricky, unfortunately. Yeah. So what exactly is Catalyst BC? Yeah, Catalyst, um, you know, it, we, it's kind of a, it's a holding company for what we refer to as our ecosystem. So Catalyst is comprised of a handful of companies. Um, it's kind of a mixture of genetics um, paired with consulting services. Um, we've kind of done the whole vertical integration thing. We've been doing this for 10 years. We don't know everything. We make mistakes. We're human beings, but we do know a lot. Um, and we've we've been able to get to the start line and also get to the finish line a couple of times, which um, is, is not easy to do. Um, but that all being said, um, allele genetics is kind of our THC arm and heartwood is our um, hemp CBD arm. You know, there's different, those have to be different companies for lots of different reasons. They play by different sets of rules, different tax reasons. Um, we really focus there and that's where we're really focused on like advanced genomic breeding and really trying to stabilize and advance, um, a lot of the traits that we like in, uh, most of the common cultivars today. But, you know, how do you bring all the things that you love into like a utopian plant or a series of utopian plants? You know, it's so common that a cultivar will have the best, a really great desirable terpene profile and a great potency, but it lacks yield. Um, and there's, you know, it's very rare to find a cultivar that checks all the boxes. And through, through genomic breeding, 
the idea is that utilizing these maps and markers uh, that we can bring all the great traits together and also maybe get some of the undesirable traits out. So like mold and mildew resistance is a trait. Um, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. So I watched so many farmers and cultivators really struggle with just fighting their genetics. Um, maybe their genetics are susceptible to something, maybe they're diseased, maybe they're just weak. So if we can start to provide people with strong, healthy seed, strong, healthy germplasm, um, it'll make the farmer's life a whole lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible. So this is the direction that you see it going, being able to have more control, more data-driven control over the plant? You know, I hope so. Um, I think I think it's what the people deserve. Um, as someone who dealt with a lot of health issues, one of the reasons that pushed me to kind of cultivate my own, even go down this path was I couldn't trust the products that were out there. They were so batch to batch and my health was so compromised that once I found out that most of the people were using pesticides that, you know, not only do I not under, not only should I not ingest those pesticides, I sure should not ignite them on fire and change chemical compound and inhale them in my lungs. So, you know, something I, when I worked a lot with the MS community um, in the early 2000s, I was always struck. They knew I was pro cannabis, but I was never, I always educate people on a sense of like, if you're buying something and you're in an illegal state and you don't know the grower, there's a good chance that you may be buying a product that could actually do more damage long-term to your health than good. And it's tricky because cannabis is, for most people, it has very immediate effects. And if you're in pain and you get relief, all you can think is, my gosh, that cannabis gave me so much pain relief. I slept so good last night. I didn't take whatever painkiller I was on. But at the same time, if you, in my world, if you have like a neurological disorder or an autoimmune disorder, and now you're inhaling potentially pesticides or fungicides, I don't know what the long-term ramifications of that are. So where you might be getting a short-term benefit, there could be a massive long-term risk. Absolutely, we even saw the short-term risk with the vaping crisis and all of those vaping tests happened with the THC. Who knows, who knows what's gonna happen with vape. Yeah, it's kind of scary, you know, the vape very well could be like, it's kind of when our parents and doctors were all smoking cigarettes, you know, a long time ago, and they were like, oh, you know, it's fine. And then one day it was like, oh, it's not fine. It's actually, it's actually killing you. So yeah, there's some, there's some concerns there, you know, there's so many components to it. And again, without standardization, you have a lot of stuff that's really batch to batch. So what might help you one day could hurt you the next day or have an adverse effect. Yeah. So you were right on the cutting edge of so many different areas in this industry. And so I have one question. My last question for everybody is what's the one thing that you really want to see change within specifically the medical cannabis industry? You know, it's, I, I got I to give you two things. Um, okay, fair enough. The, the first thing is, is for the operators. The operators need banking. Um, it is, it's so sad that this industry is generating so much revenue and the banking opportunities are so limited. Um, it puts people in really bad positions. Um, it's dangerous How, having all that cash um, and dealing in cash. There's really no industry like it. Um, and if it's going to be legal, it needs to, they need to give people the tools. And banking, I think, is one of the things that across the board, I just see so many challenges with for so many folks. Um, on the patient side, gosh, I really want to see retail elevated experiences that are backed by some kind of third party certification or training. 
I mean, there's just a lot of untrained people at the retail dispensary level that are advising people on their health. And they say things that are just, they're just not true. And I think if anything, it's putting their company at risk. Um, you know, at Kind Love, as an example, I would never tell you that this is going to cure your multiple sclerosis. I would say something like, hey, we have a good amount of MS patients here. They are all giving us a lot of positive feedback from this cultivar. Here's how they're using it. It might be worth you trying. I can't promise it's going to work for you like it does for them, but it, it could. But that's such a different statement than someone telling me that, oh, yeah, that treats MS. You know, I mean, the stuff I've heard from the bud tender's retail mouth is just, it's really bad. That's and it's everywhere. It's every state. It's everywhere I go. Cause I always poke. I always ask a couple, I feel bad for them a little bit, but I always ask a couple key questions that involve um, a deep answer. It's not a shallow answer. And if I get a shallow answer, I'll just poke at it just a little bit. And they, they don't, they're like, they'll get a manager to go ask them. And then I get more bad information from their leadership. So can you uh, share some of these questions? I think that might be really helpful for some of the listeners. Oh, you know, I was in a facility last night and um, the bud tender, I'd asked him what I asked him what the potency was on the cannabis. And he said to me, he goes, Oh, we don't really focus on potency here. We focus on terpenes. And I was like, okay. I'm like, well, you still have to test your product. And I'm just, you know, you didn't answer my question. Um, and I was like, Oh, can you provide me a terpene analysis to review? And it was like, you know, it was a big fiasco. And then instead of doing that, he tells me that they're a living, oh, he's like, Oh, we do living organic soil. And I was like, Oh, that's great. I was like, do you guys do like a true no-till or do you do like a partial semi-till and he, you know his mouth was open like in confusion he's like uh i you know he didn't know so it's they just need to take a deeper dive they're saying kind of good stuff at the surface but they don't know why they're saying it and so the same thing i tell people in cannabis cultivation or anything that we do don't just do something because someone told you to do it like you need to understand why um because if, if you're just going to do something because someone told you to do it you're just kind of a robot. And if you're not challenging it, um, you're not really like advancing your thought process. You're just kind of a cog in, in the wheel. And so um, I think it's critical that people understand, especially when training new employees, they train why is this so important? Why is this important to the end user, the patient? Why is this important to the plant? Because if they can't at tell you why it's important, you might not need to be doing it. And it goes back into that kind of lean farming um, you know, get rid of that non-value adding waste. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been amazing, Mike. I've learned so much from our first conversation I learned. I learned a whole lot more and just incredible information. And I just really appreciate your time. Thanks. For yeah, coming. no, I mean, thank you for having these podcasts. You know, I can't tell you, you know, learning is such a different thing these days compared to traditional learning. And I've learned so much from people who share on podcasts, um, and it's just great to see people like yourself providing a platform for industry people, um, new, seasoned, and, and, and old. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, man. All right. Well, I appreciate it. And there you have it, folks. I told you you're going to learn a lot. That was amazing. I think that we can all agree that the future of cannabis medicine is in good hands as long as people like Michael are the ones cultivating that medicine. If you haven't already, please take just a moment, head over to Apple or Stitcher or Google, wherever it is you're listening to this, and give us a rating. Let us know what you think. Let me know how I'm doing. I want to keep bringing you all the very best information possible, and the only way I can do that is if I know that I'm actually serving you, the listeners. Thank you so much. Once again, enjoy yourself. 
until next time, be strong and stay healthy. This Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast is copyright EM2P2 Inc. 2020. All rights reserved. Podcast use and availability is governed by terms and disclaimers available at edgeofcannabismedicine.com forward slash terms. I'm your host, Matthew Myro, and thank you for listening. Thank you.